Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, today's episode, we're going to continue into this uh, this golden age of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, ironically, with perhaps one of the most forgotten, overlooked, and uh, undervalued films uh, Hitch ever took on. But it definitely belongs in this golden age because this is his first collaboration with Bernard Herrmann, who uh, was Hitch's favorite of all, or, well, who who created uh, one of Hitch's a favorite of all the scores he ever had for, and it was for this film, which is a really good way to start off a collaboration, I think, with uh, with true success. Uh, so, without any further ado, let's just jump right into this movie. Um, this film is called The Trouble with Harry. Uh, a, a lot of you probably have never heard of this movie, uh, and I think that's really, really sad because if you enjoy dark British macabre humor then you have to watch this movie. Um, it is it is too funny um, and just really enjoyable. Uh, there's some great performances from uh, Ted Gwynn, who um, she's the only thing I know him from right off the top of my head is he played Santa Claus in the original Miracle on 34th Street. This was Shirley MacLaine's first movie, um, there's just some terrific, terrific performances across the board in this film, and it's it's so fun. And of course, it involves a corpse because it's Alfred Hitchcock. Um, essentially, this film is uh, well. I'll break it down this way: uh, when a new face shows up in a small town, it causes great problems for the residents, which is strange considering that this man is dead. Um, essentially, the movie is about people trying to figure out whether or not they killed him and it's i'm just gonna leave it there because i feel like you need to see it yourself i really cannot recommend this movie enough um which is funny because uh hitch didn't say a lot about this film and what he did say he said repeatedly Uh, he said it was a film of british sensibilities with the dark macabre humor and it was shot in the fall in vermont because the beauty would serve as a counterpoint to the death and morbidness of the story and there you have it. Yeah, that's that's what Hitch had to say about this movie, pretty much. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to cover some other topics that I think are at least kind of related to this film. And I apologize if this is a short episode because I've kind of boxed myself into this. The bulk of the show needs to be, or the bulk of the class needs to be, what Hitch said and what he thought, and not how I think and what I see and how I feel. Um, so let's talk about Hitch's use of color. Um, as a review in the film Rope, I believe we should have uh, talked about uh, limited color palette. Maybe we didn't. Indeed, maybe we didn't. Did we? Maybe we didn't. You know what? I don't think we did. So, awesome. So this isn't even a review. Even better. Okay. So... <laughs> All right, cool. Um, Anyway, so Hitch, uh, in his first color film, in Rope, very intentionally limited the color palette. And if you watch that movie, what you see are a lot of neutral colors, a lot of browns, very, very navies, a lot of uh, taupes and... um, 
it's not a colorful film, which is ironic because uh, it was Technicolor. And Technicolor, as I'm sure some of us know, was designed for that heavy saturation. But Hitch went in the opposite direction. What he did was he limited the color palette around everyone so that the faces would stand out more. And it works really well. But in this film, he actually kind of goes in the opposite direction. It still limits the color palette, which I think is a, I think is a great, um, a great method because what it does is, then when you introduce color, to make a character stand out, to emphasize a moment, whatever it may be, uh, it is more eye-catching, more noticeable, more powerful because you've done such a good job of hopefully limiting the color up to that point. But in this film, he does the exact opposite. He goes to Vermont and he shoots a film in the fall. And for those of you familiar with fall colors and how tree-filled the state of Vermont is, um, you can quickly put together a picture in your head of how that would look, and it is beautiful. So instead of limiting the color palette, he goes to a place saturated with color. Granted, still fairly neutral, yeah, fairly neutral, but still very relatively vibrant. But he said that he does this to avoid the cliche because the movie is about, or at least centers around, a dead man. And so it would be natural maybe to shoot that film in the winter or just before spring when um, the trees are all dead and it's gloomy and it's overcast and dark. But this is a comedy. So Hitch intentionally goes out of his way to avoid the cliché to come back around to an idea that um, that you have this idea of beauty contrasting the death, which works incredibly well in a comedy, definitely. And this is just one of the ways that, uh, that I keep coming back to of Hitch just thinking outside the box, not going with the ordinary, not sticking with what is expected, but coming around to, to a whole new way of looking at it and coming up with something far more interesting. Now, Hitch had an issue here. This is a movie that he really, really, really wanted to do. It played to his British sense of humor. Uh, it was based on a British novel, but... I want to talk a minute about that self-indulgence because this is actually one of the... I found an interview where Hitch actually didn't just give the log line about, oh, yeah, well, it was a fun British movie that didn't do very well in the States, and, uh, oh, yeah, and we used color to counterpoint the death. Hitch actually in this interview talks about that self-indulgence because um, something you need to understand is that Hitch took what I would call filmmaking ethics very seriously. He, Hitch... Hitch understood, and I'm pretty sure we've talked about this from pretty early on, that this was an industry, an industry just like coal or um, manufacturing or textiles or, or what have you, where everyone goes to work and they do their job that is involved with someone else's money being put up so that we can all make money for the boss so that we can get paid, so that we can continue to work. There's a reason we call it the movie industry. For the most part, if you're making a large budget, you know, a big budget film, or even even most independent films, you're not playing with your own money. You're playing with someone else's money, and you're playing with somebody else's job. So you need to do this right. 
because those people who are working for you need to get paid. So you can't blow all your money on some other part of the film and then stiff all of your employees or all of your contractors is really what they are. Um, but you also can't make a movie that only only you want to see because then it won't make any money back. And if you are going to do that, like uh, Kevin Smith has done for the last two of his films, three of his films actually, um, then you need to keep the budget so low that the people who invested in you in the first place can make their money back. This is something that Hitch understood. Um, he He... In one of his interviews, he tells a story of uh, sitting in his car at the studio watching all of the technicians leave after the day and realizing that every single one of those has a job at that moment because Hitch decided to make a movie. Otherwise, they might still be looking for work. Because one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is, um, especially the techs, but really anybody these days especially, um, none of us are contract or none of us are, are salaried employees. We're all contractors. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's me in Boise, Idaho, or if it's J.J. Abrams out in Hollywood. We're all just working toward that next job. Now, I I could get into a long diatribe about that, but but Hitch understood that other people's jobs were at stake if his movie didn't do well, which means that he had to make a movie that the audience was going to go see and enjoy and put money into by buying tickets. So in the book Hitchcock Interviews, under the chapter Hugh Weldon, who interviewed Hitchcock, Hugh asks him, have you ever made a movie without any regard for the audience? And Hitch says, yes, I made one called The Trouble with Harry, and it lost. It lost, I suppose, about a half million dollars. So that's an expensive indulgence. And here we come to the question of ethics with other people's money. Now, to put that loss in perspective, simply adjusted for inflation, we're not talking about a half million dollar loss in today's money. We're talking about somewhere around four and a half million dollars. And also, the film industry, for whatever reason, now has more money flowing through it. Um... And so it's possible that in today's market, an Alfred Hitchcock movie would have cost far more money. And to get a similar percentage on the returns, you could be talking about maybe a $10 million loss, a 15 a $20 million loss. Uh, because, you know, casting, you know, somebody would have been more expensive or, you know, maybe Hitch's salary would have been higher or whatever. Bernard Herrmann's salary certainly would have been higher, uh, I would imagine. Now, all is not lost because The Trouble with Harry did play great in places in Europe. In some places, it ran for a year or more. But it did, do, but it did not do well in its initial release in the United States. Over the years, American audiences have become more familiar with this very macabre, dark British sense of humor and have accepted it more. Uh, so in the long run, I'm sure it's made its money back. However... At that, but we now have DVD sales, and we ha you can purchase this movie on Amazon. So there's some sort of licensing agreement there. Um, you know, I have it on Blu-ray. Um, so you know, all was not lost. It did play well in other places, but its main market was the United States, and it lost money there. So 
that's that's a little bit of ethics. That's a little bit of color for you. This episode is going to be really, really short, and I apologize. Um, in order to kind of make up for that, I want to carry on a little historical note that I had in the last episode when we talked about rear window. We were talking about widescreen. We were talking about how Paramount had these these cropped, you know, fake letterboxed widescreen films. However, there's an interesting note. Um, the issue with that 166 to 1 ratio um, was that because it's just a crap or a crap, because it's just a cropped version of 35 millimeter film, it then had to be blown up, you know, and magnified uh, on the screen to fill the screen. So it comes out a little bit grainier because in the processing and then in the actual viewing of it, um, it's been magnified, you know, and, and that's something that you could do, uh, you know, if you haven't experienced it, you know, you, you take a shot of anything and then you go into your editor and you, you magnify it, say, just 25%. Well, you're going to notice those pixels more. Well, it's the same thing with film. Even though you're not dealing with pixels, you're dealing with uh, the little silver halide crystals that and, and, and that's what creates the grain. And so then we magnify the those, you get more grain. So now Paramount's trying to figure out, okay, so how do we do widescreen but we make it look good um, without investing in anamorphic lenses and these 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 optics that will create a widescreen image on a relatively square negative. Anyway, um, what they do it's actually kind of ingenious. They flip the negative. So instead of running through the camera vertically, it runs through the camera horizontally. And if you've ever taken or taken a look at 35 millimeter still photos, like from an old uh, SLR camera, like if you ever took like a film photography class in high school or, or college, um, you'll notice that you're using the same film that they use on the big movies, but or the same, the same size film, but because it runs through the camera horizontally, you actually get a widescreen image instead of that one three three to one image, which would be if it was running vertical. And because it's and because now you're using the whole thirty five millimeter image, what you have is a much higher quality image because now now there's no magnification involved to get it out to widescreen. So this is what we call VistaVision, uh, which was Paramount's answer to widescreen, um, or their second answer to widescreen. Uh, in fact, in the opening titles with the big Paramount logo, it says VistaVision, high fidelity image or something like that. Um, and it is stunning. It really is stunning. Uh, this movie was made in 1950. Oh dear, this movie was made in 1955. Only one year at, or was released in 1955. Only one year after Rear Window. And if you, there's no comparison between The Trouble with Harry and Rear Window, and I have the Blu-ray copies, the you know the off of like a 4K restoration, um, or whatever it is, or maybe it's only a 2K restoration. I don't really know. Um, <laughs> You know, and don't get me wrong, like, Rear Window looks good, but the trouble with Harry looks absolutely incredible. Do yourself a favor. Find a high-definition copy of this film. 
um, whether it's it's getting it on Blu-ray or if you buy it on Amazon, I'm sure streaming it isn't quite as pretty. Um, it is phenomenal. If you never get a chance to go to Vermont in the fall, which I haven't, and I don't feel like I need to um, because I've seen it, it's stunning. Anyway, um, on that note, as I've sort of stretched this episode as much as I can and repeated myself repeatedly even, um, thank you all for for attending this class session. Um, if you have any questions about uh, this episode or a past episode, feel free to email me at hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Facebook. I have a page there, uh, just Hitchcock University. I have a Twitter account, uh, Hitch, Hitch underscore you. And, uh, yeah, also I would love to get some feedback from you guys. I, I want to know, you know, how this is working, you know, what's going on. Um, so if you could, uh, you know, leave a comment or a review or a rating somewhere, wherever it is you're listening to the show, whether it's iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, I guess it's it's Apple Podcast now or something like that. Um, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, wherever it is you listen to the show. Uh, thank you so much for attending this class session again. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks with Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Thank you.